evolution of money has tipped the scales towards cryptocurrency. According to an April survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, it revealed overall 17% of U.S. adults say that they've either invested in or traded with cryptocurrency. Educating yourselves on the myths and common misconceptions surrounding cryptocurrency is a must if you're going to use it effectively, efficiently, and if it ever is to have sustainable staying power. Professor Tanya M. Evans is the author of Digital Money Demystified, the essential myth-busting guide which empowers the crypto-curious to be the crypto-confident. Dr. Evans is also a professional writer, speaker, and law professor. She is also the host of the weekly popular podcast, Tech Intersect, an engaging and informative weekly show which highlights new and notables, preparing new color professionals for the future of work, wealth, and creativity. During my conversation with Dr. Evans, we also touched upon the current state of educational equity and equality in America today, and while it's so important for young people to know how to invest, save, and manage their money. This will be a conversation that you will be glad that you had the chance to encounter. So without further delay, I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. my invitation to engage in conversation. It's great to see you today. Thank you. It's great to see you as well, Kevin. And I'm looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to our conversation and our time together. So I, I am at your disposal, sir. As am I, uh, Dr. Evans. I know that you're all about uh, digital money. I know you're the author of the, of the book, Digital Money Demystified, the, the essential myth. Boston Guide to empower uh, uh, the crypto, curious to be the crypto confident. So I'm wondering if we can uh, start our conversation by you telling me about your book and what it's all about. 
Yeah, well, when I thought about, I, I let me t- take a, a, a step to the side. I'm a, a law professor, a full-time law professor, a, a full-tenured professor at Penn State Dickinson Law School, co-hire appointment in the um, computational and data sciences uh, department as well. And so that afforded me an opportunity to really lean into research from an academic point of view and also with a a legal mind thinking about policy considerations for the development of the crypto economy, blockchain and all of that. And we can kind of go down that, excuse me, rabbit hole in a moment. But I say that to say it's so easy to get lost in jargon and it is so easy for the average person to completely glaze over when people start saying cryptographically secured protocols, et cetera, et cetera, that I wanted to find a way in a simple and accessible format for just the average person who's not a technologist who may not be in finance or the technologist who doesn't fully appreciate um, some of the underlying reasons why this type of technology, this idea of peer-to-peer cash um, was actually a thing. Like, why is this important? Where did it come from? And that rabbit hole led me to just basically the 10 or 15 most commonly asked questions of me for the average person trying to get in. They trust me. They said, it doesn't appear that Professor Evans has gone crazy, Um, but she's talking about this magic internet money and I really want to get my arms around it. So this was a really great way for me to right-size the conversation, separate fact from fiction, separate from a lot of the noise and confusion and carnival barking in the space, so that people can just have the right information at the right time to make an informed decision should they choose to purchase cryptocurrency. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Evans is a law professor. I, I'm fascinated to also ask you, and I know this isn't in our original uh, grouping of questions, but I'm also fascinated to ask you about the state of law today in America, because you know, a lot of people uh, interpret uh, so the, the 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 law differently. Because you know, uh, there are a lot of uh, armchair lawyers out there to sort of fit the narrative, fit the narrative of the law to their benefit. So I'm, I'm just fascinated to get your general thoughts on the state of law today in America. It's really interesting because so many things are in flux. And what we are quickly learning also is that you can't make a decision in isolation, that everything has a reverberating impact on other things. Uh, Laws are meant to provide the framework that we all um, trust the, the either the organization, if we're talking about like corporate governance, or when you're thinking about government, that we all buy into a system that we have to trust. And it makes it really, really difficult when there's an erosion of trust around some of the um, institutions that used to be highly regarded, where regardless of kind of where people fall as on the political spectrum, we all at some point in my lifetime, way, way back in the day, actually had a center um, and a central and a common understanding of baseline facts. Now your extrapolation of those facts and what you do with them Uh, based upon what you need for your family or your life, et cetera, may change. But a baseline set of facts is integral to the integrity of a legal system. 
And when those systems start to erode, then the confidence of the people that the law was intended to govern starts to erode as well. And that leads you down um, a path that can be very dangerous when you're trying to find your way back to what are the baseline facts so that we can formulate policy and laws and rules and regulations that make sense uh, for the majority. So I'm a little concerned with the way that institutions um, uh, have broken trust. It, the, the loss of trust is, is, is earned in many capacities. I'm hoping that we'll find our way back, but it is an interesting time in the world, particularly as I start to work on laws that apply to technology in general, the Web3 in particular, because it requires that people trust and that we innovate and we build policies and rules and regulations that, that really work. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Evans, to that point, I'm wondering your thoughts on why do you think cryptocurrency has become so uh, popular and whether you think it needs better reg regulation as more people get more access to it, how can we make sure we use cryptocurrency effectively, but also uh, safely as well? Absolutely. And you know that I'm uh, definitely committed when I think of my uh, from Cash to Crypto program. It really was, uh, de I developed it for systemically marginalized folks to have better access, inclusion, better transparency, and to really start to analyze um, the type of power and sovereignty that comes from um, uh, having more control over your money and, and the ability to transfer value between people without some of the intermediaries talking about it didn't depend on a government. I travel a lot right now. So the fact that I have to exchange money into local currency when we're living in an increasingly globalized world, um, society as a matter of value exchange is actually important. And it's empowering for me to be able to do that. I, I imagine a world, it won't be tomorrow, but I imagine a world that there will be a global reserve currency at some point in the future that doesn't depend on a particular nation state. When we think of the global reserve uh, right now, it's the dollar, but we're also creeping very dangerously close to a default, which has uh, cataclysmic uh, impacts if it continues to go on. And under, you know, it undercuts the confidence, not only in the United States, but around the world, when other countries are starting to move back to a gold standard. We haven't actually been on a gold standard for decades. It requires the full faith and credit of the government. Um, but imagine a world where it doesn't require government issued currency or what we call fiat for us to, to um, exchange. Uh, when I think about why, um, or, or the state of the law for crypto now, I look at it at a macro level across nations, but also certainly in the United States, I recently testified before the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Digital Assets, Financial Technology and Inclusion. And so we have um, committees and, and, and Congress people trying to make sense of it, trying to fashion rules. There are some existing rules that apply, like you can't be a thief. <laughs> you have to pay your taxes. There are things that we don't have to make up new raw, uh, excuse me, rules and laws for this type of uh, what I would call programmable money, but then there is some space and some regulatory uncertainty as between the financial regulators, the ones that regulate the markets, the Securities and Exchange Commission or the SEC, the Commodity Future Tradings Commission or the CFTC. Um, there's only agreement of one particular type of cryptocurrency and it really revolves, uh, revolves around Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin's the OG. It was the first. Um, it was first launched in uh, January of 2009. And it has an interesting history. It's gone through bull and bear markets. And so we kind of put that aside. There are over 24,000 different types of coins and tokens in the space. Many of them are securities, but our regulators can't even agree on a proper taxonomy, and that makes it difficult to govern. So I'm concerned in the United States in particular, it's an aggressive stance that seems to be driving innovation off of our shores and into other, um, other areas, markets, where governments have just made it more clear. And in the process, it's not like our rules or lack of clarity will stop the technology. It's just going to move away. And I think that puts the United States or the citizens of the United States at a disadvantage, not only to invest, but also to build in the space, um, which I'm passionate about as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Evans, as I'm sure you know, uh, last week we celebrated Global Accessibility Awareness Day. And uh, just a little bit about myself, Dr. Evans, I was born with what's called uh, spastic quadriplegia cerebral palsy. Simply means that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And it's important to me to build bridges of inclusion and acceptance wherever I can. So we talk about access to money and building both financial and social capital. How important do you think it is to really infuse folks with disabilities into mainstream society? When I think about all of the um, physical and systemic barriers to meaningful participation in a society, a lot of it has to do with financial freedom. Money is a tool and it is a tool that can be used for good or for evil, but in order to participate fully and meaningfully in society, you have to have access uh, in particular to a bank account. You have to have accessibility in terms of being able to access certain websites. There's so many uh, parts of technology that require people to not uh, consider accessibility as an afterthought, but meaningfully at the beginning when systems and user experience, user interfaces, uh, contemplate and appreciate and accommodate all citizens, not just the privileged few um, that have the, the privilege of a uh, certain type of health and wealth, et cetera. And it's not enough for the, uh, because I, I do think that in the blockchain and, and crypto ecosystem, there's a, um, there's a mantra that it's for everyone. I think people have to be more proactive about that. It's not enough to just build it and then everyone can participate without understanding um, the, the barriers to entry. There are a lot of barriers to entry that have been removed or lessened at the level of uh, trans, um, transparency or not having to be beholden to a particular um, intermediary like a bank or a, a government or a system that doesn't want everybody to win. Um, there is a barrier with respect to education. And I think the UI UX or the user interface and experience of websites, um, the use of cold storage wallets that may not be amenable to all um, uh, physically um, disabled folks or mentally, there are a whole lot of other areas where people aren't really building um, the infrastructure, the hardware and the software that will meaningfully allow for, for participation. 
is critically important, but there's also an opportunity for folks to build as well. Increasingly, yeah. people are like staying home and, and working remotely. And there are a lot of opportunities to build and to invest in ways that we couldn't conceive of in the 20th century. Yeah, Dr. Fede, I always say that every opportunity, every opportunity we're given in life is an opportunity for growth, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and Dr. Fede, I also know that you're a, a renowned speaker and you travel all over the country to talk uh, to people in a motivational uh, speaking sort of a platform. So tell me about the importance you place on sort of authentically connecting with people and how important do you think that is? Yeah, just when I think of, of a little um, fun fact about me, I'm a former professional tennis player. I went to Northwestern University on a full tennis scholarship. I graduated in 91 and I played on, on tour from 91 to 95, usually trying to grind it out at the satellite and challenger levels, trying to earn enough points to get into the majors. But in 93, I did uh, win a national tournament and get a wild card into the, the uh, qualifying rounds of the U.S. Open, but um, and a, a number of other tournaments that year. It was probably my best year. One of the there are two great things that came from being an um, an elite athlete. One was getting a top tier education that was paid for. The other was being afforded the opportunity to travel the world. When we travel, it changes our relate. It should, if you're open, intellectually curious, and lean in to other cultures and other possibilities. That your way of life is great for you, but somebody else loves their life too, and they may live in Portugal, where I just returned from, or somewhere in the UAE, or in France, or Italy, uh, in the Caribbean, and, and on the continent of Africa. It changes the nature of our relationship to each other, and that requires. Um, an intellectual and cultural curiosity. It requires empathy. And all of those things strengthen the human being to really show up for people. So that, you know, one of my core values is that I leave people, places, and things better than I found them. And that is my charge in life. And it doesn't depend on whether someone um, deserves it. Like that's my contribution to the world to be open, to continually learn. Um, and, you know, to, my grandmother used to say, um, get good counsel, but do your own deciding, right? In order to get good counsel and to be informed so that I've become a better teacher, a better writer, a better speaker, it requires leaning in from an intellectually and, and culturally curious point of view to be open to conversations and people who are different than I am and have had different experiences, because I just think I'm just a better person for it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Life is a constant growing experience, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Until I take my last breath. Well, you know, life, <laughs> yeah, life always gives us an opportunity to learn. I, I, I always tell people that life is a lifelong learning experience too, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. If we're doing it right. And it makes me think, you know, I was uh, doing, a, I had a conversation recently about the education system. And even as a full tenured professor, I know we're doing a lot of things wrong. That there's it, the, the time that it takes to learn something, we, we're just speeding up the ability to teach people discrete tasks and kind of modularize education so that people get what they need when they need it. And that 
it also um, encourages and facilitates lifelong learning. There's so many people who stop learning after high school or college or even an advanced degree and learn just enough to be competent in their particular job, but never just learn for the process of learning, which really opens up uh, the mind. But I'm, I'm thinking that this, this uh, technology can also provide that opportunity as well to, in the same way that money and value has become decentralized. So it doesn't um, centralize power in one particular place. We need to do that with education as well to give more people an opportunity to learn more things that are relevant in the future of work and wealth and, and innovation. Yeah, and since you brought this up, I'll follow up with this, uh, Dr. Evans. I'm fascinated to ask you about educational equity in today's mm -hmm. uh, uh, society because you look what's happening in, in places like Florida, for example, where they've banned the study of uh, African American studies mm -hmm. in, in like uh, state universities or uh, the teaching of DEI programs. So I'm asking, I'm fascinated to ask you about uh, the state of educational equity also in America today. It's a really frightening time. It, it, it's difficult for me to fully appreciate in this day and age that we would be fighting over things that we'd taken for granted. Um, and I want people to pay attention because this time, I mean, we, every year for the last um, eight years, it seems I've, I've been saying that this is, you know, such a, a cataclysmic, uh, pivotal moment, right? An inflection point where we can go dangerously one way or another. And it starts by just the gradual erosion of being informed and informed citizenry is the type of citizenry that holds their, um, their elected officials accountable, that we're not anesthetized with, and I love a good TV show that doesn't mean anything, but at a certain point, we really have to focus and say, if there's so many things that are distracting us, why are, what's, what's behind that? What is behind um, outlawing books that have stood the test of time? You know, and I think of like Toni Morrison's work or Alice Walker or all of these books that inform our understanding of culture, of history, of, of imagination, of creativity, of truth. It makes me think of um, how it was illegal, for example, for an enslaved population here in the United States not to read. If the enslaved population was so dumb, why did you have to create a rule? Right. If this enslaved population is so dumb, why did we have to bring uh, Africans out of uh, the, the continent to come and create this this grand experiment um, where uh, systems were built on the backs of free labor? Like what is going on? What in what ways are we doomed to repeat the past um, in more nuanced and subtle ways if we're not careful? It's really dangerous to start banning learning and, and connection and, and creating these false things because I believe that we're more, more alike than, than disalike or dissimilar. Uh, and, and at the root of it is this, I, this insidious idea that certain books should be banned. Um, I, I feel that's just really, really dangerous and very bad, clearly, for education. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Evans, I'm curious to go back to crypto just for a moment because I know you have some uh, common myths that you uh, dispel. And tell me, how do you think people can be smart crypto investors as well? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because I've come up with something that I think a lot of people consider to be an oxymoron. It's like, can you be a prudent crypto investor? Um, and I would argue that you can if you're like me. I'm actually one of the most risk adverse people <laughs> that people will, uh, people who knew me before I started this work can't understand how I'm doing it. And people who know me for this work in the policy and education space for crypto wonder what I could ever have done before. And it's really, I think it's that level of sensitivity. It is my training as a lawyer. I'm licensed in four states in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and DC. So I take that very seriously. You know, I came up in big law. I was the editor-in-chief of my law journal at Howard University School of Law. So my critical thinking skills are usually on exponential. And I'm I'm curious, but critical, trying to understand like what is the point of this? What are the risks? that people have to figure out. And what I've come to understand and, and what I teach, not only um, at, in law schools, but also at Advantage Evans Academy, where I work with um, regular investors and also leaders about preparing for the future of money and, and the future of work, is that you can be prudent. And in fact, if you don't do anything else um, after listening to this episode, committing to learning the language of crypto assets, learning um, how to uh, vet and select, how to protect them. All of those things are going to be critically important because crypto is here to stay. Every major government is working on its own version of a digital dollar or a central bank digital currency. What makes that different than from Bitcoin? What makes it different from Ethereum and other coins and tokens in the space? Why are there 24,000 and counting? Um, what does that mean when we try and apply traditional um, investment metrics to an emerging asset class? Uh, what does it mean when you take advantage of a first mover advantage, when others are fearful and you get the opportunity to lean in, be a first mover, and, uh, um, and maybe have sizable returns? The downside of a risky investment is, uh, one, you can. the upside is that you can win. The downside is you can lose big as well. So the idea of balancing an overall portfolio with all of the traditional things we would already do, investing in or at least um, looking into real estate, stocks and bonds, um, intellectual property, business ownership. But as a part of a la larger portfolio, there's a lot of opportunity to make money over the long term, um, not in the short term, but over the long term that can have a sizable win. I have personally benefited from that. And I want people to understand the advantage, the sizable advantage you have when you're a first mover in an emerging space, but you have to do it legally and safely and confidently. Yeah, you never want to be, uh, you always want to be the first, but you never want to be the last. Never right? Don't hold the bag because it's usually empty. <laughs> That's exactly right. And don't know another way that you uh, educate people is through your weekly podcast where yes. you have engaging and informative conversations about what we've been talking about today. So tell me about your podcast and what it's all about. Absolutely. So it's called the Tech Intersect Podcast, and I focus on uh, interviews and some solo episodes, but mostly interviews of new and notable folks working at the intersection of law and business and technology. And recently, because of my work in the crypto space and certainly as a result of digital money demystified coming out, I focused more specifically on some of the myths that you mentioned earlier um, to right-size the conversation there. I've had 
some of the notables, like one of the commissioners from the SEC, Hester Purse on, and the chief legal officer at Coinbase, come on. He also testified on the same panel before House Financial Services um, as well. But then I have emerging folks who are working in AI and or, or doing things that are better, faster, cheaper in the, in the tech space, but with a decided focus on the future of money. Um, looking at myths like whether crypto is just for criminals or is it a fad, is it unregulated, uh, is it just for crypto bros or is there enough space for us all? So I have a lot of really intriguing, interesting conversations to explore this intersection of um, business and law and technology and with a future forward point of view. So it makes it really fun. It, it Every week, on Fridays, it, I have a new episode that drops. I've been doing this since December of 2019. So I think I'm up to almost 160 episodes. Um, now, some a few of them were repeats, but I never missed a week, and I'm proud of that. And you know how difficult that is to stand up a pod and have it go regularly. Uh, but I enjoy it. I've had great conversations, and um, it, it keeps me it keeps me on top of my game too because I have to do a lot of research to ask the great questions like you are asking today. Yeah, well, if you uh, go into podcasting, there's a there's a benefit to being consistent, isn't there? Absolutely, and and then there's there's a benefit and a pressure, a, a benefiting pressure. <laughs> but I do look forward to um, the conversations because I feel like I always learn something new. I imagine you uh, feel the same way because you cover such a wide swath of of, um, of topics and you stay super current with those topics so that you you're, you're, you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Evans. And I'm, I'm curious to also ask you about the concept of sustainable wealth, mm. particularly for Black Americans, because, you know, when we look at the world today, you know, uh, I think financial edu education is so vitally important to re re really creating a, an environment of sustainable wealth. So how do you think we can achieve sustainable wealth over the long term, uh, mm -hmm. particularly for the black community as well? Um, it's interesting because even with my, my educational privilege, I never learned as much about finances as I had to learn in order to fully, fully appreciate and leverage crypto to my benefit. Um, and it's been actually fun. It's been empowering to have a base foundation in uh, investing and what it means to not just focus on high income, which is actually taxed at a higher rate, but to be to use my money to invest in assets and create assets that actually work harder than me. In order to really um, become wealthy, not just rich or not just um, receiving a high income, being a high net worth individual, which was originally my goal, this idea of wealth is creating and investing in assets that actually go out there and work harder than me, that actually have a significant return on investment over time, and also um, strong diversity within a portfolio and within an asset class uh, as well, so that sometimes stocks are booming and the housing market is flat. 
or down. Sometimes crypto is booming and stocks take a hit. Sometimes everything's down. We think about the last three years in particular and the macroeconomic impact on all sectors and industries, not just one. At many places, it wasn't a failure per se of crypto or of stocks. It was just what was going on. We were having this existential crisis and this very real health crisis as well. And understand the, um, the energy of money, the tool of money, not just to pay the bills, but to um, unlock the potential of assets so that you will be good in good times and bad. It's not enough just to invest in traditional assets. It's not enough, although it's important to be educated. It's not because we know a lot of people who don't seem to be particularly educated and they are winning from a dollars and cents point of view, but to always um, stay ahead of the curve and to have a balancing and a rebalancing, which really requires that we show up and really learn what it means, not to just to create wealth in one generation, but what secession planning uh, involves as well, which can be particularly challenging for the crypto space. My uh, podcast episode this week for Tech Intersect, and folks can go to whatever you know, whatever platform you're listening to this on. I shoot it out to YouTube. It's on all of your apps. It had to do with a number of things, but one in particular: how to plan for a crypto estate because of the way that autonomy, self-sufficiency, managing your own wallet, being your own bank. That's kind of a blessing and a challenge if you pass on and others can't access it. Uh, and so that becomes a challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Dr. Evans, as an educator, I, I, I'm fascinated to ask you your uh, concept of view on the concept of uh, what, what I call sort of consistent uh, resiliency and mm. how, how important it is to be uh, consistently resilient. And for you in particular, why is it so important to impact uh, the lives of young people as an educator? Oh, this is such a wonderful um, question because consistency and resilience in and of themselves are very powerful. And, and important as a matter of consistency. We talked, for example, of consistently showing up uh, and being a woman of my word and dropping um, uh, content that people can rely on. But also there's a balance to that, to consistently taking care of myself um, when I'm tired or, or to put myself in a good position so that I can also not only be consistent for others and for myself, but that idea of resilience which also leans into a certain level of flexibility, creating space that everything can't be carefully curated, that at some point you are receiving, we are receiving constant feedback and data, this idea of playing the, the game from uh, my childhood of getting warmer, getting colder, right? There's a, um, a, a resilience that we have in times of crisis. And that comes from consistently working on yourself and creating the tools, uh, the mental, physical, spiritual tools to weather the storm because storms come. And the idea to on the other side of that as a matter of leveraging resources, asking for help, um, also um, the idea of, of knowing that if you are still breathing, you have survived 100% of your worst days that is a concept and an idea that propels me forward, even though 
when things look bleak. I'm a, an only child. And I remember when the pandemic first hit and I was also teaching, I was the associate dean at um, University of New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce School of Law. And I'm good being by my own self, but when I choose to, not when, you know, I've locked myself in, in, in the house with my mask and my, you know, my boosters and praying for a good outcome, but the ability on the, uh, on the other side of the worst of it, I'll put it that way, to know that I not only survived, but thrived. And, and, and that's what I want to also impart with my students particularly law students, because we we have this formulaic way that we teach as a matter of critical thinking and issue spotting and problem solving. Uh, but that also requires that we have enough space to be resilient in all circumstances, to be fortified and to protect ourselves and prepare ourselves for a journey. So um, this final point, when I think of consistent resilience, it's not in isolation, it's a process, it's an evolution. And it's something that is a, a continual, continually showing up for yourselves and others um, and gaining strength from that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Dr. Evans, I've got two uh, more questions for you. One of them is a, a two-part quest, question, which I'll end on. But mm -hmm. the first question that I have for you is about the debt ceiling. You know, we're, 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 gonna, we're getting dangerously close to running out of money for uh, um, America to pay its debts. And, and as you know, as you turn on the new, news, you know, one of the consistent headlines for the last couple of weeks has been uh, the, the debt ceiling debate. So I, I, I'm fascinated because we talked about a little bit about it earlier, but to get your perspective on the state of uh, sort of uh, negotiations and how would affect America if they do indeed default for the first time in their history. Yeah, this is, I mean, we're effectively really, even though they're two weeks, if things aren't resolved by the end of this week, and I'm sorry to say I don't have any confidence that it will be done uh, by this week because it, we're, this is um, a massive ship that does not turn on a dime. Mm -hmm. And um, the consequences are, I mean, just at a micro level, you know, spending up to the maximum on your credit card and then deciding I'm not going to pay. That's effectively what this means. This is not new money. I know that a lot of negotiations are trying to connect promises for future spending budgets uh, with the debt ceiling and raising it to accommodate the change in interest rates and, and things that change from the time that you actually buy services or goods and the time that the bill comes due. The bill is due. Our system is not um, built on or supported by the gold reserve. We are built on the full faith and credit of this government. And if we don't show up and pay the debts that we owe for services and goods already received, uh, credit rating goes down. Uh, more countries start moving away from the dollar as a reserve uh, because they're losing confidence, they're losing faith, they're losing trust, which is one of the reasons that Bitcoin launched in the first place. Bitcoin was actually built for times like this. Um, and then the reverberating effect for uh, government uh, employees to be furloughed, independent contractors not to be paid, it 
calls into question when Social Security and Medicare benefits, like there's this whole system, this network that is supported based on the full faith and credit of the government. And if we don't get this right, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like we're getting to the find out stage. Uh, we will find out, but it's very dangerous to play with uh, the full faith and credit of the government. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Dr. Evans, as we end our time together today, I'm fascinated to ask you about, what do you think about your defining moment of difference in your own personal life? How, did, how, how would you answer that question? And when you look at your own personal and professional legacy, I'm wondering how you want that to be defined. Mm, I love this so much because been thinking a lot about this kind of in the second stage of, of life where I'm just really, really happy and content to have the freedom to do everything I want and nothing I don't, which is a very empowering place to be where I've lived enough that I have some sense and I have some dollars and cents as well. <laughs> and so that comes together at a really good time to say, with imagination and the curiosity of little Tanya a long time ago um, of play and of rest, uh, of rediscovery. And I would love to be known for someone who um, reconnected, continually and resiliently reconnected with her creative self to figure out what that meant at each stage of my life. So, you know, I had some traditional and non-traditional paths to what I'm doing right now uh, as a creative person, as an athlete, as a scholar, um, and someone who's intellectually curious. And so as a writer, speaker, and teacher, um, if I'm most well-known for consistently and continually being creative, finding new ways to express my, my skills, um, and new ways from a very free perspective to do the best I can for, for my family and for others, and to leave that as a legacy, uh, I'll, I'll be super proud of that life. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Dr. Evans, just before I ask you how, how people can get a hold of you if they're into, interested in connecting, you know, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you, Doctor, was because I, I, I don't know if you knew this about myself, but I originally went to school to become a sports reporter. So I was oh. excited to learn about your tennis background. And I have to tell you, I almost went to law school when I was deciding what to do after high school. And I found out that law school was a lot longer than journalism <laughs> school. So that that that's what tipped the scales in that direction. Okay? That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but uh, law is my uh, second uh, passion in life. You know, I grew up watching things like cops and Judge Judy and, you know, uh, court TV is on the, uh, a regular uh, uh, dial on my house. So I love the legal profession and I want to thank you for your contributions to it. And tell me, if people want to get connected with you, Dr. Evans, what's the best way they can do that? There are two great ways. Um, one certainly is to go to my professional uh, website. So that's proftanyaevans.com. It's T-O-N-Y-A-E-V-A-N-S and the prof for professor. So that's a great stop. And then if you want to learn more about my book, how to pre-order 
as well. It's uh, and pre-ordering is really critically important. It it, it signals to the industry um, and to others that my voice matters in the space to help educate people about cryptocurrency. You can go to digitalmoneydemystified.com to do that. And that will lead you not only to the book, but other opportunities uh, for people to just get in quickly. The book comes out October 24th, 2023. So I hope you invite me back closer in time and we can dig more into the myths and all of that. But uh, so I encourage people to pre-order. But at that page, you can also learn about the Digital Money Demystified Bundle. It's an inexpensive way to get started now with a short course, lots of resources to support you on your journey. And that's a great way to connect with my inner circle community as well. Uh, it's vibrant. We share a lot of resources and the inner circle is, is free. So it's a great way. It's kind of like Facebook, but not Facebook. Uh, and so those are the ways that are best. Uh, ProfTanyaEvans.com and DigitalMoneyDemystified.com. Fabulous. Well, uh, Dr. Evans, I'll certainly invite you back, back when the book comes out because October 24th happens during my grandmother's birthday, so I won't oh, forget it, okay? Yay, that's wonderful. Excellent. We channeled uh, grandmothers today. I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> and I have to quickly tell you that one of the reasons I also, also I was excited to talk to you was you and my mother share the uh, same first name. So there you go. Oh, okay. Another Tanya. Yes. So my mom told me to treat you with grace, dignity, and respect today. <laughs> so I hope I uh, followed my mother's orders. But in all seriousness, Dr. <laughs> Evans, I really, really want to applaud you for your work in the space and uh, for joining me to engage in conversation about cryptocurrency in the state of education in America. You work in the space and time on my behalf is most appreciated. And I want to thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Kevin. I look forward to our next time together.